Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold on to your butts. We are changing the course of history as we see it. That is what Westman demands. Now this affects Iris. Um, Iris, where are you? What you feel only matters to you. I do not entertain hypotheticals. The world as it is is vexing enough. Iris, I have a tip for you. Don't take drugs! Or whatever movies with Wesley and Iris. What up and welcome to Or Whatever Movies. I am your co-host, Iris, and I am here with my older brother. Wesley. Today we are talking a movie from 2018 available currently on Hulu, Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale. Nightingale or Nightingale? Nighting, night. (laughs) (laughs) What is it with Jennifer Kent and her very hard to pronounce titles? Maybe we'll soften it up with an Australian accent. Nightingale. So Nightingale, how many years after Babadook? (laughs) Babadook. Babadook. Babadook, what, 2014? So what, five years? Her sophomore follow-up? Yes. You were all excited about reviewing Babadook. 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 (laughs) Had you seen Nightingale? No. We put this on the programming schedule because I wanted to round out our Halloween slate. Pretty far from a Halloween movie, I think. Other than that, this is going to be a great companion piece to Jennifer Kent's Babadook? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> right. Pretty far from Halloween. <laughs> Terrifying in a different way. Woo. Uh, so was Nightingale, yeah, right? Was Nightingale what you expected? Not at all. I knew that I was going to see the Nightingale after the success of the Babadook, and I was excited about it. I thought, well, obviously, Jennifer Kent's follow-up. Maybe the Nightingale's like the Raven. Maybe it's a gothic horror tale. And the cover art, the poster, certainly suggests that there's something dark and ominous about it, right? Very suggestive of bird, the birds. And all the more terrible because it's true. Not based on an exact true story, but rather the colonial and post-colonial history of everybody from criminals on the island of Tasmania, as well as the indigenous peoples, the first first peoples. The aborigines. All right, so Nightingale by the numbers. Uh, how many rapes? I wrote down, I have never seen a double rape in a movie like this. Jesus. And little did I know, we were just getting started. I counted three. I counted five. Three of the terrible, four of the terrible incidents happened in their little cabin in Claire's home on that one fateful night where the lieutenant came calling and uh, husband made the terrible decision to go for the gun against like four trained soldiers. He had one ball in a long gun and a a rifle. (sighs) How many murders? One, two, three, four. Are we counting Claire's murders? Five, six. Yeah, for sure. At least seven, at least eight, at least eight. (laughs) And how many acres of unforgiving bush? A lot. Kelly referred to the Revenant as death slog through the snow. Yeah. So this was for us death slog through the bush. Do you think that Billy's injury was fatal? 
I'm pretty sure. I mean, he ran away from civilization. It's all about infection, and his wound was pretty serious. It might take a while, and it might be painful. I was half expecting him to transform into a blackbird and fly away, because that's really the only way he wasn't going to die out there on the beach. Speaking of transformations and this not being a horror film, I definitely expected that the incident at the cabin, as we can call it, was, was just the harbinger of Claire's transformation into a witch, a, a possessed demonic presence. I, I thought that no one could endure that kind of evil without being supernaturally transformed by it. Right. What's the supernatural term? Is she a wraith? She's not a revenant. I mean, I just expected her by the light of the full moon as she laid there, I think that first night on her revenge mission that, you know, she was going to go all werewolf and like start attacking people and ripping them apart. I said the same thing. I think it was because of the revealing moonshot. I was like, here it goes. Here's where (laughs) she becomes a werewolf. Well, that coupled with Jennifer Kent. Yeah. And we did have that eerie dancing montage like we had in the uh, in the Babadook. We had something close to that, like early filmmaking, like that Nickelodeon kind of vibe. Oh, right. You mean where she's dancing with her husband? Ooh. Yeah. yeah. And you kept, you kept expecting it because with Jennifer Kent, I don't think there are boundaries. I think she told a very controlled, realistic story. And, and so you can forgive her some of the those more fantastic thematic elements because it was kind of in Claire's head. And we watched her flirt with insanity for a long time. But I thought there are no rules. Jennifer Kent can totally go off the rails at any time. But it stayed pretty grounded, pretty linear, pretty unsurprising. I mean, I didn't expect her to end uh, on the beach at sunset, completely intact. But there was no other course for this story to run other than revenge. She was going to make it to town for sure. Right. And then once it played out how it did, I wasn't entirely sure Billy was going to make it. We didn't see him for probably, what, the first half hour of the film? So I I didn't know how indispensable he was any more than uh, Cousin Bob or whatever his name was. Uncle Fred, what was his name? (laughs) You can't disrespect Charlie. Charlie. Cousin Charlie. Uncle Charlie. Well, they disrespected the hell out of Charlie. Well, they disrespected all of the... The blacks, as they called them. Yep. And Claire disrespected Uncle Charlie's memory by fully showing herself when she had the lieutenant dead to rights. And then she stood there and was lucky that Billy tackled her. You mean when she's up on the um, elevated up on the rock and she has a clear shot of the lieutenant? Yes. And they make eye contact and all that. What what was she had brutally, brutally murders the the second. The leg dude? Whatever that dude. Yeah. The the dude who got speared in the leg by the onslaught. She brutally maims, disfigures and murders him and then decides not to take a shot at the the main perpetrator of the heinous crimes and the right. and the reason that she was in that situation to begin with. I mean, we had to draw that out for a while. I don't understand why she reacted the way she did, except that when she was in close quarters with Leg Dude, she was going to take him out in the most Night of the Living Dead way possible. I did so I didn't understand that, but I guess her revenge killing of that dude who she chased, he had the worst death of all. The husband got shot. He was immediately down for the count and dead. The poor baby, we know what happened there. Uh, everybody else was killed and didn't have to suffer except that dude crawling through the trees like all day and night until she finally caught up with him. It was like a long chase. And she murdered him so brutally that I thought that was it. Like, like that was Jennifer Kent's gratuitous 
revenge killing. And I wondered what was going to happen because she couldn't possibly do that again with uh, the lieutenant when she catches up with him, right? And then I thought, well, then you also can't discount Jennifer Kent because I think after that murder, weren't there still rapes to happen and terrible things? Well, it, it definitely kept on coming, but there was no murder more brutal than that. There was obviously some knife penetration. She talked about implied violence, and she quoted Hitchcock, although she didn't attribute it to Hitchcock. Uh, when someone said, how could you show that on film You know, for Psycho? Look for our Psycho release coming up soon on Or Whatever Movies. And he just <laughs> said, I didn't put that on film. You imagined it in your mind. And a lot of the brutality was imagined. There was no gratuitousness in the rape scene. But that stabbing scene, I'm pretty sure we saw the knife penetrating some dummy or other. Blood splashing in her face and stuff. It was pretty brutal. The bludgeoning of the face, the bludgeoning and the disfiguring of the face was pretty detailed. And yet somehow more acceptable because it was justifiable, I guess, because it Mm. was motivated. Uh, Justifiable? For the Australian film premiere, 30 people out of 600 in the theater walked out. Now, you get walkouts in festivals for a number of reasons, but then one person shouted over his shoulder, I'm not watching this. She's already been raped once. And I was like, well, that dude, he had no idea what was in store. But at the same time, it's an awful shame to leave this movie after such a traumatic scene. And to see it again, I thought was unthinkable. Apparently not. But if you walk out at that point, if Kelly were to give up on the movie, which was tough on her up top, especially after such a brutal murder of that dude, however revenge motivated it was, then you have all the terrible stuff and none of the payoff. Like you can't just watch the terrible rape slash murder scenes and then be like, nope, I'm done because then this movie will haunt you forever. Hmm. So by payoff, you mean that when when justice is served or when at least her mission is complete, you felt satisfied? I mean, the, the movie appeals in that way to our baser natures, right? We want redemption for the Claire character. And it's not to say that she needs redeeming, but we need some closure for her because she has so many wrongs perpetrated against her. It wasn't going to be like, I really don't want you to get this post of captain and I'm going to stand up and say it, say so in front of your superiors, you know? that dude was always gonna die well he was ugh he was so gross and sam clayfin has been in a number of things notably peaky blinders and other things and i wondered for less mature moviegoers or whatever like so many characters of perfectly fine actors you know i hated john lithgow i couldn't look at him after raising kane and cliffhanger uh, Brian Dennehy, as I mentioned in First Blood a long time ago, and Sam Clayton, if you didn't know any, he was anybody except this rapey lieutenant dude, like, wouldn't you hate him personally? He is so despicable. He's almost ashamed that he had to play someone that he called the closest to the devil that he'll ever play. But, you know, hopefully people know this young actor for more than this role. He said this was the least redeeming, redeemable character he'd ever played. The fact that his character was so irredeemable and so evil. Are there people that bad in the world, you know, aside from being completely psychotic and like mentally deranged? Like, was he a psychopath? I think he was just a dude who was trying to advance. He did take pleasure in what he was doing and raping the poor dude's wife in front of him. And then like shooting. If you're going to shoot the dude, shoot the dude before you rape his wife, will you? Right. Yeah. But and so but I do think that like Promising Young Woman, that dudes like this 
can seriously compartmentalize and shut it off. I'm a good dude who just wants to be a good officer, but when it comes to killing people, I don't mind the blood at all. When it comes to doing terrible things, they're just stepping stones on my way to, to get what I want. Well, you called him a psychopath, which I guess applies because the things that would horrify most of us and corrupt or our morality, all that stuff that doesn't apply. It seemed like there was no end to his evil, but we should be able to understand him. In order for him to be a well-rounded character? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, the only way I can understand him is he wants the rank of captain and he's willing to go to great lengths to secure that position for himself. And so the only thing I can think is that he's a man possessed in his search for power and the power hungriness motivates him to act atrociously to everyone and everything that comes across his path. I think that is the object of rape, power and exerting that power over over someone else, subjugating people. And yeah. I feel like her standing toe to toe with him and calling him out for the thing that he wanted most, trying to disabuse the other officers of the notion that he would be a fit captain, is her striking at the heart of his humanity. That's what he wanted, and that was maybe the most effective revenge. And that's why I think we needed to see that happen before Billy put a spear into his chest. But aside from that, I think that the lieutenant's character was meant to be representative of the rape and and abuse of the indigenous people and women on a whole on the island of Tasmania. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So how important was it for us to understand the historical context of this setting? The Aboriginal Aborigines and their genocide or their complete suppression of their culture? It is set in Tasmania, which for those who don't know, because my only point of reference is the Tasmanian devil, which of course is the largest predator on that particular island. Tasmania, an island off the uh, coast of Australia, not only were, was it being colonized by the whites, but this was a prison colony in the 1820s, full of the worst dudes ever like if Kurt Russell were there it would have been escape from Tasmania like some of the most hardened criminals ever and then someone thought that it would have it would be a good idea to balance out the population so even though there were terrible horrible female criminals also some women who were sent to prison camps for what was called livable crimes or living crimes like stealing food or stealing clothes or whatever the case may be were sent to this horrible penal colony when the men outnumber you by a minimum of nine to one. Like who's not going to get raped? And that was Jennifer Kent's <laughs> angle. I mean, it's like you're like, oh, that's terrible to assume such a thing, except this is a vital part of Australian and Tasmanian history that Jennifer Kent delved really deeply into, where she said that you would be less likely to find a woman in that time in that place who hadn't been raped at some point. And yet Claire had what seemed like a happy existence with Aiden, with her baby girl in their little shack. Or at least that's the way, that's what the lieutenant suggested, that he made lots of allowances for her, letting her get married, giving her a horse or giving her the access to get the horse, having their little home. Like, it seemed like she was, in terms of prisoners, she had a somewhat functioning 
cozy life. She should have been free, let her go, and he wouldn't let her go and I think was trying to pacify her. See, I'm paying you a shilling for performing, and here's a cameo, and see, I let you live with your husband, and all this stuff. But he was pretty sick in keeping her as captive the whole time. What I didn't understand was whether or not when he said to the husband to get a rise out of him to justify shooting him, when he said that they had been having sex all this time, which of course was twisted, I kind of got the impression, at least from what we saw on the screen, that the first rape that we witnessed when he slapped her and said she was ungrateful and stuff that seemed to me like the first time based on the horror of her face and she didn't immediately shut it down and go all glazed eyed and look in the look into the fire and maybe i hmm. was wrong i guess it is kind of confusing because it was almost like she went there not expecting that there was going to be intimacy like that she was going to be performing for him which also doesn't seem consistent with with their overall dynamic what I assumed was that Claire was Lieutenant Hawkins' concubine and personal plaything, but it seemed like he at least wanted to pacify her enough to let her marry somebody for love, presumably let her have a baby. Yeah, I guess it's unclear why their relationship took such a dramatic turn when it seemed like even if it even though it was maybe not sustainable or healthy, it didn't seem untenable at the start. Yeah, I think he was acting out because he was feeling that he was going to be passed over for the promotion to captain. And so he had a lot on his mind and and, and it's a terrible mind. So he does terrible things with his terrible mind. And she just kind of was the first at hand when it came to who can I abuse today? I found myself extremely unsteady the whole time. This is not my world. I don't know this place. I don't know what Jennifer Kent is really capable of trying to pull in this journey. Like anything could have happened. And in that way, it was pretty tense. Like you were bracing yourself because given her track record and the direction this movie was going, it seemed like there was no end to the depth of the depravity. Yeah. And collaterally, it was just it was so much. I mean, every other person except no, Billy, too, got it in the gut. All the guides and aborigines got it. And Hawkins made it clear from the outset that once they serve their purpose, they're useless. Uh, the poor lady got shot in the back after being raped. And then we never saw that crying kid again. That kid's just wandering out there, going to be Tarzan. Yeah, not only is the kid orphaned, but the kid is lost. And when she was done, then nobody concerned themselves a single second further with the baby. Well, she was alone when yeah. she was with the baby. I when, know. When she was kidnapped. <laughs> At that point, you're not expecting the soldiers to to give one iota for a kid. Right, but, but Jennifer Kent remembers the kid is out there. We never saw that kid again. And I didn't know where it was going. I was like, she cannot go through three rapes, brutal murders and stuff. And then they're going to R-tax the horse in the mud or whatever. I was like, this, she can't lose this stupid horse. And then the horse just pulls his foot out of the muck. And you're like, woo, because I wasn't ready for the horse death scene. Uh, the horse definitely more trouble than it was worth until they get to the city. And <laughs> right. then it's their means of escape. And I'm like, okay, well, at least the horse paid off. Right? I mean, didn't Hawkins set out with his men without horses because a horse couldn't possibly traverse that route? Right. So instead they hired a couple criminals to like pull and push a, wa a massive wagon full right. of, I don't know what. Oh, I didn't supplies. even count the little kid. You mean in the in the total body count? Yeah, dude. Gavroche is just like there until he's not. And they're like, bang, and he falls out of frame and that's it. Was Jennifer Kent making some kind of 
cinematic statement by all bets are off, like let's murder the kids and the babies and, and rape all the women. Yeah, I think she was trying to show the brutality and the reality of Tasmania 1820s without sugarcoating an ounce of it. Nobody was safe. The indigenous peoples weren't safe. Women, children, nobody was safe. And to what end or to what effect? Jennifer Kent is doing it in such a way that she speaks to the actual history and just peeling back the layers or the veil of history to demonstrate how terrible this one little muddy corner of the Australian continent really was. I mean, she talked about how unflinching this movie is. And at the same time, everybody's chatting it up. We're talking about whether Sam Clayton will be typecast or remembered as the most horrible person on screen in recent memory. And he's sitting there with Ashling in interviews and they're all like smiley and happy with each other. Apparently there was a lot of <laughs> hugging on set. Everybody. Oh, kind of, yeah. They were like all friends and stuff. And they all had to look out for each other because they were like in the bush, man, having a really tough time out there. It wasn't fun. They were sleeping in like Greaser Bob's fishing hotel or something. Thing and they could have been doing circles in two acres of land or less, and I wouldn't have had <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> any idea. <laughs> and maybe they were to an extent, but we got a lot of varied terrain. We got the top of the stuff where Uncle Bob had his uh, Uncle end Charlie and, right? and the view, mm -hmm. and it was you know a lot of hard going. But there were parties every week and playlists of music, and there was a clinical psychologist on set. Yeah, Ashling was speaking with survivors of rape and studied up a lot on PTSD and trauma before going into this role. And she it took a real toll on her. Like during the terrible scenes, she was sobbing in between takes and had to get to a really emotional place. And this clinical psychologist was on set and she was dictating some of the action. She's like, OK, after this take, we're definitely breaking. And how are you doing? How are you coping with this? Now that we've established that you're in a place where you recognize that this is just acting, can you go and let the guys know? Because they're really worried about you right now. And it seems like everybody was on top of it because Jennifer Kent is willing to punish the moviegoer in order to get them to understand the historical huh. significance of what's on screen. But I, it seems like for the most part, everyone was really taken care of on set. That's interesting. Interesting juxtaposition of taking such great care of performers, both physically and, and psychologically, at least to the best of your ability, given the context. Punishing for the audience is an interesting word. I was trying to formulate my thoughts on the film as diplomatically as possible. And I think this movie was very challenging for me. Challenging in two ways. One, uh, the subject matter is very challenging, which I'm okay with. I mean, I'm not okay with the things that were depicted, but I'm okay with challenging material. But more fundamentally for me, this film challenged my idea of narrative, of the narrative construct. So all storytelling, with film being no exception, is a reconstruction of reality as we understand it or as we apply meaning to an otherwise kind of chaotic reality. But that doesn't mean that we reconstruct reality in every way. We're crafting a narrative. And I felt like a lot of times the brutality and the evil that was depicted didn't serve a narrative purpose. She was just clobbering us over the head and keeping us in kind of a perpetual state of like just punch drunk enough to go along with this revenge tale, this otherwise very thin, very plot driven revenge tale. Death it made slot. it really hard for me. <laughs> it made it really hard for me to connect with Claire or with Billy, whom we haven't talked enough about. So 
I guess my summary is a very challenging film, but ultimately I, I, I can't say that Nightingale was effective or successful. This is how Jennifer can't do. She's going to pull back the blanket just when you think you're all cozy and you got your vibrator. She's going to use that opportunity for a jump scare because you're never safe in Jennifer Kent's world. That so was that's a reference her, that's how she keeps us <laughs> to the Bob Duke <laughs> to make it less weird imparting that sentence to my sister. <laughs> People, our listeners were picking up what you were putting down. I wonder... They were feeling your vibe. I did wonder if there was any revenge or catharsis worthy of witnessing everything we had to go through. Such mm. brutality. And did witnessing more brutality against the raper slash baby killer, was that going to help us sleep better at night? It got us to the end, and I guess it can justify us getting there. But I wasn't at all surprised when I heard that a bunch of people got up and left the theater. Um, the Babadook was a huge success. I mean, for Australian independent movie standards, it only made about $10 million theatrically, but it was on like less than a million. Excellent return. Uh, so that we know Jennifer Kent's name, so that I at least was eagerly anticipating her follow-up. She had lots of mainstream Hollywood producers and stuff calling her up, trying to get her next project, but she felt this one needed to be told. And she did it and labored out in the bush. This picture was shot more or less in in order, in sequence, and because she really wanted them to feel going through the motions and experiencing everything so that when you get to town and the ultimate redemption, I guess, happens, that everybody's on board. There's no cheating it. The emotionality is real. Billy, who was played by who again, please? Bakley. Bakley. And I don't remember his name because, like Barkat Abdi in Captain Phillips, this dude had never acted in a major... He, he was He's a dancer. And this is actually his first feature motion picture. And so he came pretty correct for this and, and put himself through a lot to get there. I just wondered how much it was worth it for everyone. And I think that is reflected in her big follow-up to The Babadook, which made one-tenth the money back. I can find no evidence that this movie made more than $909,000 worldwide. Wow. And there's no way this budget was under a million. So maybe it pushed X forward. Maybe it brought some exposure, I guess, to such and such, but it ended up on Hulu more or less for free. We were talking about it because of the Babadook and because I was excited for the follow-up, but I don't think anybody actually saw this movie. It may have been talked about more than it has been seen. Hmm. What about how it was received critically? Uh, I think it did pretty well. I think it's it's certainly positive, largely positive reviews. And most people talk about how Jennifer Kent went all in and she was going to take an unflinching look at her country's tarnished, bloody past. Claire does overcome her racism. She's like, I'm not going with no damn blacks or whatever, you know, and she's not happy with the idea of having to rely on Billy at all. But then they find their kinship, their their mutual respect and admiration for each other, maybe a kind of platonic love. But Billy, in ultimately helping her achieve her objective of revenge, wasn't doing himself or his Aboriginal brethren any favors. By going in, storming into town and killing a bunch of white soldiers and then getting gut shot and running off into the trees, that didn't really help the case. People are, you know, they think he's a savage. Oh, man. When he meets the other captives that... Oh, did you count their murders? Oh. <sighs> 
the body count just heaping up. But when so when they identify their different tribesmen, their different tribes, it was very clear to Billy, the blackbird, that his people were gone. I mean, this really was the last of the Aborigines. I think that you could probably guess that despite the brave new film looking at a brave old world, Nightingale didn't work for me. Boring? Certainly not boring, but in your limited scale. Not in the conventional use of the term, but I'm going to say that her need to prove how raw and unflinching her look was at this story, that it didn't work. I'm not going to suggest that everyone needs to see this movie. It is certainly educational and eye-opening. This is the line that people like the sneak will draw in the sand. Why would I want to subject myself to a movie like that where all these terrible things happen to all these people and women and native people? It's not worth it for just more killing. It's killing on top of killing. And I get it, but I think we need independent filmmakers. Jennifer Kent hates to be referred to, not hates maybe, but she doesn't think of her gender when she's making these movies. And there's a pushing of the envelope that's almost more shocking because of her sex. So in comparing her in that way to other female filmmakers, she's like the Australian Catherine Bigelow. And those voices are important. It didn't quite hold up. It didn't hold up to the Babadook, that's for sure. It wasn't at all what I expected, but I'm not willing to vilify it on those or any other grounds. I thought the Nightingale was all right, but kind of tough to stomach. Like you had to earn that all right, but I'm a hardened, toughened, long suffering moviegoer. And that is all I have to say about that. I can appreciate the Nightingale, but. Never going to watch it again. If you're if you're buying the Nightingale on 4K Blu-ray and getting that digital copy, I'm not sure about you. That's like it's like it's like you when you were talking about the Mauritanian. You're like, yeah. who is this made for? You know, they talked about Jennifer Kent talked about the Aboriginal language that was nearly dead and is the first time that this language has ever been depicted on screen. And she worked with these groups who were happy for the blah, blah, blah. And they're looking into reconstructing and like putting frog DNA into their dino DNA and reconstructing the language from the ground up and creating new slash traditional dances to keep this culture alive. And I was like, oh, look at that. Jennifer Kent, humanitarian. An all right from Wes. A boring from Iris. That's our review on The Nightingale. Available on Hulu. And I hope you enjoyed this review. Uh, Or at least it was a nice reprieve from having experienced The Nightingale. (laughs) And enjoy it in combination, in connection with our review on The Babadook. Duke. Dang it! The Babadook. (laughs) Is it right? No, shoot! It rhymes with book, 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 Baba Duck. Baba Duck, Duck, Duck. Despite my review being a boring, I would, I will definitely look out for the next film in uh, Jennifer Kent's filmography. So I'm, I'm feeling, I'm already feeling a little bit remorseful, but alas, nobody has seen this. But if you have, please <laughs> let us know or whatever movies at gmail.com, 818-838-818. 835-0473. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoy the rest of our Halloween programming this year. And we'll see you next time. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are 
and live in a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab, an Electric Cast production. See you there. Electric Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women. Electric acid.